Wall Street is full of corruption and it is baked in to every aspect of our society. MMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding at the macro level. In the 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This was written over a hundred years ago. This is The Rogue Scholar with Steve Grumbine. All right, everybody, this is Steve with Real Progressives, Real Progress Action and The Rogue Scholar, ultimately. Um, I have my friend, uh, his name is One Dime. Uh, he is a MMT creator. He is a content creator uh, on YouTube. Uh, does some really, really good stuff. I mean, fantastic stuff. Um, however, One Dime goes anonymously. And without a, a picture, we're going to go with me talking to myself. I'm going to look like I'm Captain Insano, but that's okay. I might be a little crazy, <laughs> but I'm not that crazy. <laughs> so without further ado, let me bring on my guest. One Dime, welcome, sir. Hello, happy to be here. I've been a listener of uh, Macro and Cheese. I actually listened to Macro and Cheese and uh, the MMT podcast when prepping for my video, just because I wanted to see if I got certain things right. Like I listened to a lot of the Warren Mosler talks you had. Uh, but yeah, as you said, um, I have done videos. Well, I've done one video so far on MMT. Uh, my next video employs MMT concepts. It's about taxing the rich and kind of uh, the problem with that whole discourse we have sort of on the new left and things we get wrong about the nature of taxation, funding programs, et cetera. Although I wouldn't really describe myself as an MMT creator, um, I'd more so like uh, a socialist creator, um, but I have gotten into MMT about a year ago, um, but I really didn't feel like I fully got MMT until maybe four months ago, which is when I was reading all of the, like the main books, soft currency economics, uh, seven deadly frauds, you know, the Randy Ray, the deficit myth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the all the classics. So um yeah, I, I would say I got into it, I guess, fairly recently. And um yeah, so it's it's definitely changed my view, but I suspected a lot of MMT concepts. Like I suspected a lot of what they point out. I kind of suspected um those truths for a very long time. I kind of uh, was becoming aware of that slowly, probably because I, I was on the left for a long time. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So let, let me ask you this then. So in your most recent uh, video, you did a really, really great breakdown. It's a fairly long video, shockingly, but it, it was a very, very good video that broke out MMT. And I was like, wow, this is definitely game changer stuff worth sharing. And one of the things that brought me to bring you on aside from doing that video was the, 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 discussion, if you will, about framing MMT and messaging with actual socialists, with actual Marxists, and, and understanding some of the peculiarities, if you will, of uh, the, there's like a, a brick wall, <laughs> a brick wall between entities where it's incredibly challenging to present some of these concepts to Marxist-Leninists, etc. I mean, 
it, take it away. Talk talk to me about that. Yeah, that, that as you said, it's not just a brick wall when it comes to regular folk or the right wingers. I find um, a lot of people on the left just really don't know this stuff when it comes to the nature of money, how money is created. Uh, we still talk in terms of things like tax revenue, which is a frame in itself that is wholly misleading, as I'm sure your a lot of your listeners already know. Um, but when someone uses the word tax revenue, it thinks in terms of uh, really like a like the government is a firm, like it's a business, and it's it's totally not because it's the currency issuer, right? It's not the currency user. And I mean, a lot of what we call MMT concepts are kind of common sense uh, when we see them. I think I, it's almost I, one problem I have with framing MMT is the fact that we use MMT uh, when I was making. The word MMT. When I was making my video, I was actually debating whether to even mention the word MMT and just kind of explain how the monetary system works and explain how things work. But I didn't want people to say, oh, who's this YouTuber <laughs> saying this? Who's he to know? <laughs> so I kind of wanted to be clear that there's a lot of literature on this and sources and a whole theoretical field. But it is, I, I did mention in the video that it's misleading to call MMT a theory because all it really does is it elucidates just empirical realities uh, about, about about the way the monetary system works. And the, a big problem, for, uh, for example, okay, so we assume that our social programs and most of gov federal government spending, that is, is funded by taxes and borrowing money. As we know, that's not true. And uh, <laughs> mostly newly created money. The purpose of the taxes is really to subtract money out of the economy, control inflation, generate demand for the dollar, or kind of create incentives and whatnot. So we, we know this, right? But this is alien to most people, period. A lot of people on the left, I think some people even get skeptical because it's one of those things that um, it just flips our whole conception of money on its head. And some people might intuitively grasp it but then they'll say they'll have like little doubts they'll think oh there must be something that's not right about this uh one one, one big um obstacle i find is people think that mmt only applies to the united states because the united states is an empire everybody uses the u.s dollar etc and it's like well i mean just take a look at japan and china uh or even australia and canada sovereign currency issuing governments i mean the same really applies to them Sure, the U.S. has much more trade privileges, privileges and in influencing geopolitics and whatnot, but it doesn't change the fact that a government that issues its own currency has most of its debt in that currency. Can There's nothing stopping it from running out of that currency. There's only the resource constraints and um, the inflationary constraints. And this is actually, I think, is compatible with Marxism because what is Marx right? The source of real value is human labor. That's the real value. We're not taught, we, it's almost silly to think of things in to, solely monetary terms. We need to build back better. We only talk about the amount of money that the government's printing uh, as yeah. to whether we can do that. And we never seem to talk about this when it comes to the military, but it's another story. Uh, we should be talking about the labor and the resources, right? Which I think is, is totally in line with Marxism. So I, th I see them as compatible in some respects such as that um but some people don't see it that way but usually i, f I find the people who grasp on, who are on the marxist left grasp 
MMT, they usually accept it, but might have different conclusions than a lot of the MMTers have. And I'm sure as a lot of people in the audience, so MMT isn't like a political ideology. It's just kind of a framework that describes objective facts. So one can be an MMT they, and could be a social Democrat, a, a democratic socialist, a Marxist, Marxist-Leninist, an anarchist, or you know, maybe even like a right libertarian, possibly. I don't know why you'd want to be that, but yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot to say when it comes to that. I don't know which direction well, you want to take it. Well, what I'd like to do is, I guess, I guess, let's try to take a moment and think about. You said something that I think is important to peel back, and that is that MMT is not so much a theory as it is sort of like the ops manual. Well, MMT describes currency wherever it is. So if something comes up, MMT will describe the framework by which it, it is. So if you look down at the global South, a lot of these countries do not have true monetary sovereignty because they have pegged themselves to the United States dollar, or they've peg themselves to some commodity. Most of the time, individuals are pegging themselves to a foreign currency, which means that they have to then in turn save in that currency to be able to support their currency. Um, or and, importing, and so, right? Importing for importing, you name it. Uh, yeah. They, they lack that sovereignty, whether it be real resources, be it food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, whatever. And so they need a foreign currency to be able to operate within. And one of the factors of the theory part of MMT, which I think a lot of people, especially as they come into the um, into understanding the basics of MMT, it, it's important to understand that there is a theoretical framework here, that it's constantly growing and expanding as things change. Um, so the theory part of it is in, in the sense that it's a congruent set of um, observable facts that when mixed together create what amounts to be the theory of MMT. Now, is the theory complete? Have they finished doing all research? Absolutely not. In fact, there's research being done on the daily by MMT scholars digging into this and, and examining. For example, uh, if we were to shift to a digital currency, if we were to uh, change the rules in the EU, See, MMT describes the EU as well, even though it doesn't necessarily maximize the MMT optimized view, the EU is can be described through the MMT lens. So I think this is where the theoretical aspect of MMT comes from. And I hope that people don't run away from that term because it's valuable, even though what what we end up running into as activists is Jane and Joe public sitting at a bar drinking a beer talking about in theory it sounds good and they don't realize that the theory they're describing mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the word theory the word theory is a very it's like one step above or below law in the mm -hmm. uh social sciences and there are very few laws of social science so in the sense of a free-floating fiat currency mmt is the theoretical framework for how that operates. So anyway, just, just a point of contention. I wanted to make sure people knew that perspective. In fact, if you go back and listen to Macro and Cheese episode number one, we have Bill Mitchell, who we just had this weekend, 150 some odd pods later. Um, the very first podcast we did was called Putting the T in MMT. 
Um, so we described that at length. So it's worth checking out, folks. Anyway, so one time you've got other stuff going on in terms of your leftist socialist, uh, you know, teachings that you're trying to get out there as it pertains to your videos and so forth. You made mention that you were working on one on taxation, and this is is a very, very important point that I don't think even some new MMTers understand. Talk to me about the new project that you're about to do with taxation. Yeah, so that video should be coming out within this week or at the start of next week, the very latest. And um, really, I mean, this became obvious when learning MMT, although I was always, because before getting into MMT, I was very much into Marxist literature. So I was, I always saw taxing the rich as a kind of in the um, very insufficient reform because it doesn't get at the root of inequality, right? And that's one thing I say. So in the video, I use both MMT and Marxism. At least, I mean, I don't really, uh, I am I, informed by those perspectives when writing the video. But uh, before MMT, I already saw texting the riches a bit of, is very insufficient because all it does is it kind of tr uh, chim chips at the symptoms of inequality rather than its roots which as uh, Marx noted and as uh, early liberal philosophers also like Jean-Jacques Rousseau noted is private property. Now I'm like, I'm not the most hardcore communist in the sense that I think you can't, you shouldn't be able to own a farm or you shouldn't be able to own uh, like your house. Although no communist thinks you should, shouldn't be able to own a house. Like in Cuba, you can actually own up to two houses because uh, that's personal property as long as you're not commodifying it for rents and whatnot. Um, but I, in general, I'm not, uh, I think there's a lot of interpretation to be had about what consists private property, but what I am very much for as a solution is decommodifying real estate, meaning that there should be strict limits on how much properties one is allowed to own. And also we should have policies, which is when MMT comes in, like a very ambitious public housing program. This would do way more harm to the rich than taxing them would. Because if you built a public housing program, you would, uh, in the in the words of the Wall Street Journal, in the article they wrote a while ago, you would create real estate deflation. <laughs> That's a fancy word, a way of saying uh, prices of real prices of homes will just go down, and also rents will go down because uh, you, you get the gist. And this this scares the crap out of the rich. That's why they don't like uh, really um, proper public housing programs. And if they are going to tolerate some, they have to be the the city municipal tax funded ones that are really crappy, uh, that are for that are for people who are at the poorest of the poor. Um, but we should be, of course, looking at a much more ambitious public housing program, kind of like what Austria has. And uh, you've seen Austrian public housing. Be quite nice. It's from a tradition, actually, from when the Social Democrats were in power a very long time ago. So popular that the current, the, even the right wing governments couldn't get rid of it. But I think with technology we have today, we have a capability of really providing public housing on a mass scale. Um, and it's, it'll take some time, but this is a resource constraint, right? Not a monetary constraint. It's not inflationary. It's deflationary. There's no reason we can't do it. Look, if the Soviet Union was able to give housing to everybody. Uh, you know, however, not great the housing might have been, although, you know, people and people now in like Canada and the United States are paying, paying uh, 800 a month for like a Soviet style tiny apartment anyway. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not like we're doing that great either. Uh, but, uh, in, you know, if the, this war torn country that was extremely poor 
and just recently industrialized, was able to give everybody housing. There's no reason why the United States can't, no reason Canada can't, et cetera. Uh, so I think I think we should be looking at these as a solution to mitigate inequality, uh, as well as limiting the amount of properties people can own, rather than taxing. Because um, taxing is not only obviously, as I said, inconsequential when it comes to really getting at the root of things, but it also it doesn't serve the purpose that a lot of progressives think it does, which is how oh, we're going to fund all these programs by taxing the rich. And <laughs> it's like no, uh, when you tax them, their money doesn't go anywhere. It's literally deleted. Right. It's like a ticket to this tickets to the Super Bowl, right? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I, you know, I want to I want to bring up something to you. Uh, you you had said that we should go ahead and provide public housing. Now, I am a huge universal basic services kind of guy. I am not a UBI guy because we know that cash doesn't amount to much of anything. It's the actual goods and services. And as you see, with gas prices, for example, with uh electric prices like i was on a set fixed electric bill at like 300 dollars a month which is terrible but now it's even more terrible it's up to 425 a month now imagine if they were kind enough to give me my 300 dollars a month for electric i would still be short on my electric bill by 128 dollars you know what i mean so i want free electric i want the electric service i want free healthcare, not access to affordable healthcare. I want housing, not, for, you know, access to affordable housing. This is an opportunity for us to reclaim the public purpose and, and really bring about a real honest to God shift in the balance of power between capital landowners and Jane and Joe public, the regular voting citizens. I like where your head's at. Take us further. Yeah, well, you mentioned universal basic services. I think that is certainly a priority over a universal basic income. I'm not opposed to universal basic income, but I'm pretty critical of approaches that talk solely about it uh, as like the end all solution without talking about uh, housing, land reform, whatnot, or um, just not having to pay for certain things like university or healthcare. I mean, I, at least Canada, at least we got healthcare somewhat taken care of, although it's been very. Uh, subtly privatized and underfunded over the years, but we still have by and large like free healthcare. Uh, really, we should be looking at these things because what does uh, basic income mean if your landlord can just jack up the rents? Exactly. Not not. <laughs> so, and also there's a thing, we really shouldn't be defending like landlords, anybody, um, even if someone isn't like a socialist, because we, we often forget early capitalist theorists like Adam Smith we very much hated landlords and partially because landlords isn't actually a capitalist institution. It's a, it's a feudalist institution, much older. It's not progressive at all. Uh, there's no, one can make the argument that capitalism, especially like in its early stages has, it has like benefits, even though it has all these catastrophic uh, side effects, like destroying the planet, um, creating inequality, exploitation, whatnot. But capitalism does have a, sort of productive role in the sense that it um, creates a lot of wealth It makes people because of exploitation and reinvestment and, and whatnot, it cr makes things happen. It can, if it's directed or it can, you know, tons of money can be allocated to uh, recreating the same Marvel films, but you know, it can have productive purposes. <laughs> right. uh, and capitalism also, let's be honest, it gives us like con good consumer shit. 
sometimes too much consumer <laughs> shit. Sometimes it's useless. But landlords, there's nothing. Even I think even capitalist uh, pe people who are not socialist or whatnot should be on board with a public housing program and the decommodification of real estate. Uh, there's many ways to go about that, but one way I think is limiting the amount of properties one can own because this is the kind of thing that um, is not easy to evade. Like if you actually really enforce it, where taxes you can evade fairly easily. Um, so I think that these are important solutions. But yeah, there's nothing productive about landlordism in some, in many cases, or actually in all the cases, usually landlords, landowners, landowning class, as Adam Smith uh, said, have in, a vested interest in keeping society underdeveloped often, like very backward. So there's not a productive role. I think we should be focusing on this. Um, I, we, we're starting to see a bit of that now with like more rent strikes and whatnot. So I think that's a good direction, but we should be putting that we should go beyond older solutions just like uh, rent control and whatnot. I think we really need to question the whole concept of rentism as a whole. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you at all. I mean, we've talked about rent control in places like New York City and things like that where squatters have really, really jacked the price up by limiting supply and keeping it very exclusive. You know, there's another uh, adjacent school of thought, and I know people of varying flavors have considered this, and that is the land value tax. Um, it's a Georgist approach to taxation. It's a single mm -hmm. tax approach, uh, which you can see pretty much, it's really more of a local uh, county kind of state-based thing, um, but it, it's perfectly conceivable something like that could be done at a national level as well. Um, and the idea being is that, you know, people that sit on their land and don't improve it and just collect rents are parasites to what you were saying. So why not force them to do something productive with that land or make it too expensive to continue to own and force them to sell it back to the public and, and, and really, really fund local initiatives through the land value tax. Now, we know that taxes at a federal level don't fund the spending. However, Warren Mosler will tell you that taxes serve to create buyers and sellers of goods. So if you look create at the markets. land value tax, exactly. Yeah, that's Here David Graeber's value uh, tax, natural. Keep going. Go ahead. Oh, well, no, I don't want to cut you off. You're, you're, but I was just supplementing it mainly with David Graeber's debt the last 5,000, the first 5,000 years talks about how Actually, that's a big purpose of taxes is sort of to create a market. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think to myself, we don't have enough bumper stickers to go around, if you will, to help train the TikTok culture of today. And I don't want to be like grandpa, get off my yard. I love TikTok as much as the next guy. But some of these concepts require more than just two seconds of you know skim something yeah i know everything it's not the matrix like where you pop it in i knew jujitsu you know it, this is something that takes a little bit of effort it doesn't have to become you know soul sucking to learn it but it does require more than just a bumper sticker you know in your work particularly your work you you're kind of doing this whole you know, faceless messaging with these great videos that are pieced together with excellent transitions. And they're exciting. They're fun to watch. 
what do you think would be a way of communicating with people who are really kind of wrapped up in either, you know, reality TV or TikTok and other such kind of like just mindless click, click, click bait? How do, how do you think we can get these messages, messages, blah, 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 messages across given the fact that the average person really, truly is stressed and worn to a nub, have been locked down for two years, and and we're sitting here watching fascism creep back into, into power again. You can see it in the U.S. It's getting ready to take off in spades here at this next election cycle. You can already see how feckless the centrist Democrats, the establishment, have been. Um, we got to message this stuff. This stuff isn't going to happen on its own, and people are distracted. How do you fix that? Well, you know, um, sometimes right-wing politicians will admit it, like Dick Cheney saying the deficit doesn't matter, <laughs> saying uh, Reagan proved the deficit doesn't matter. Uh, but <laughs> in all seriousness, I do find it really hard to, um, I mean, I try my hardest with YouTube to make it accessible, but it is uh, a skill to really dumb stuff down. And that's what we need to do. We do need to dumb stuff down. Uh, a lot of it has to do with framing. And, you know, frankly, I, I really, I don't have a TikTok account. I never use TikTok. So I'm not sure how to use it, but I think people should be. I have seen some good, um, for lack of a better term, leftist propaganda on TikTok, which is pretty effective. Like uh, I've seen, you ever seen the the anti-imperialist leftist propaganda where it's, it shows someone uh, holding one thing in one hand and one in the other, and he, and he shows... Um, Here's the deal. I get bananas, you get military dictatorship. And that's like a reference to like Guatemala, basically like, yes. or, or like a lot of South American uh, imperialism that a U, the U.S. does. Right. So there's ways of communicating things. Now, I will say there's one strength that MMT has. I, I think um, one doesn't really have to so much get, make people learn new things. Uh, it's more so unlearning that needs to take place because if you, if you talk to a kid, uh, they'll often intuitively understand the arbitrariness of a lot of power. Um, surprisingly, right. Um, there was a, there was a viral thing on uh, Twitter or something a long time ago. I remember a lot of Keynesians and MMT people were talking about it where it was like this little, it was like this teenage girl who was saying, I don't get it. If, the government creates its own currency. It's U.S. dollars. How can we run out of it? The government—it's the government's money. And she was, uh, yeah. I mean, she, and she was totally right. You know, that's uh, the thing that MMT does well, or any good economist like Marx, right, who, who, who analyzes just labor, um, asks the obvious questions, the overlooked questions that we take for granted, and. Um, sometimes kids, kids will understand, uh, because they're, they're not yet indoctrinated into this deficit ideology or these, yeah, the equilibrium and all these like ridiculous the false scarcity. Yeah. So, so many ridiculous, uh, economic, uh, concepts that we really have to be taught to become dumb enough to believe, you know, <laughs> that are, so, that are so absurd. Like the idea that the government can run out of its own currency, how did it get there? You know, this idea of, uh, okay, if we're going to attack, we need to tax everything just to pay for things. How did it get there? You don't start a country and then you start make your own currency and you said, okay, give me it. <laughs> I needed a paper. Like, no, it's the other way around. It's like they give people the currency and then tax them back, right? 
uh, as we know, and this is obvious when you learn the history of money, um, which not everyone has to do, but it helps. It helps uh, because I think part of why the barter story is still taught and money, uh, you know, from Adam Smith, who who, made, who completely just made up the story. You know, this is the thing. It's not like us MMT people are saying, oh, Emma, the um, the barter story is on based on false evidence. No, it's based on no evidence. There, there <laughs> right. was never backed up. It was exactly. completely made up. The idea that uh, people just bartered all the time and then suddenly decided to use money. It's like, no, came from, it always came from states. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So um, I think, but the reason, so in education, if we stop telling the story, that would, that would certainly help. But I think the reason why it's still taught is because it's so integral to the myth. It, it, it's the kind of thing, once you debunk that, you debunk the whole deficit story, the whole austerity story. Um now, okay, there's an, this is the other thing we should talk about is inflation because I know there's some people who already understand that the government can't like run out of money or whatever, and they'll say, but what about inflation? And then there's also the you know the people like Paul Krugman who pretended that they always knew this, who will say, oh yeah, I always understood that. You know, MMT is nothing new to me. <laughs> uh, Shamsky is like this too, really guilty of this. Um, yes. they'll, they'll pretend to like have known this already. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, but like, what about inflation? Hey, like, let's talk about that, right? Um, <laughs> right. Because that's why I spent like half the video talking about that, the second half, because it's the thing that uh, really catches people the most, I think, because some people will be skeptical of that. They're like, what about Venezuela? What about uh, Zimbabwe? What not? Never say, what about Japan? What about the United States or uh, et cetera? Exactly. So we should, we should talk about that. Um, uh, that is a really harder thing to simplify. But when it comes to just the deficit ideology, that's really easy to debunk. I can I can imagine people on TikTok really debunking that. It's simple. I mean, look on your bills. It says Federal Reserve note. There you go. <laughs> right. Well, I know. And I get Treasury okay. also. It also says the Treasury. The signatures of too, yeah. the Treasurer of the. <laughs> Well, okay. Then well, another. So, then then then's another big brain econ, uh, econ bachelor because it's always the bachelors who get taught the worst ideologies. But then you have to wait till you're in grad school to learn like perspectives outside of the. <laughs> and then um, they'll come and say, "Oh, but the, the private banks create most of the money, silly." And it's like, "Yes, that's true." Uh, but why are they allowed to do that? Part of that, you know, ha has to do with uh, inflating the bank reserves to, to lower interest rates. That's still related to the government, as well as that. Um, it still shows the arbitrariness of money. It's not like the scarce resource that you have to like tax. We so we think like in this medieval terms that it's gold coins with wheelbarrows to, you know, we we need to think outside of that. Um, this I think is easy. Inflation. I don't have the answer to to how to really explain that. In a very easy way maybe just looking at japan can help or china can help i guess well i think there's something to be said here right number one when companies like you see right now know that the government is quote unquote spending money okay they know that milton friedman set the stage from the 70s and a lot of left-wingers are still holding on to right-winger milton friedman as if he's jesus christ and they haven't realized milton friedman was a fraud um, but the idea of printing money, this fearful thing of printing money will create inflation is, is just bullshit. It's, it's false. It's a, it's a fraud. It's not even an innocent fraud at this point. It's a lethal murderous fraud that we tell. 
the other thing is that they use that monopoly power to gouge. You can see Saudi Arabia doing it with uh, price of oil. And you can see the the a bunch of different industries doing the exact same thing. But one of the challenges is, is that, that you also have demand pull and cost push type inflation that are standard things. For example, we just went through two years of a pandemic where the uh, supply chains, which have been global in nature for some time now during this neoliberal period, they broke down because you couldn't go from country to country because of the pandemic. And so with that in mind, naturally, you're adding length of time and time is money. You're also adding the fact that there is a scarcity of it. So there's competition for scarce resources, which drives the cost up. But then you all, of course, have the good capitalists that know, never let a good crisis get a waste. Let's go ahead and gouge the living hell out of these prices and make a quick buck while things are down. So this is these are some of the more key features of inflation. I, I want to get to something else that I think is important. You know, as I have explored the journey of, of Karl Marx and Engels and the history of revolutions, I mean, uh, the fall of the Roman Empire and the, uh, the illiteracy that fell from the fall of Rome, uh, the Dark Ages, you name it, all the way through the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and the English Revolution in the middle, and the Industrial, all these different revolutions, the United States Revolution as we, not the revolution, the Civil War, I should say, because the revolution for the U.S. was bullshit. It was a truly <laughs> a capitalist endeavor to say, hey, I want to keep my, keep mine. More slaves and land. Uh, Exactly. So, but but you look and you see the arc of these revolutions, right? And and most of the pushback I get from real hardcore leftists is they're looking for the revolution. They're 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 looking to pull down the veil of capitalism. And if you've read any Lenin at all, you know that Lenin was a pragmatist, and Lenin wasn't going to force yeah. a revolution that wasn't ready to happen. Uh, 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 the idea here was that the contradictions have to get to such a fever pitch that the people will not accept it as it is. Unfortunately, we know in the United States and in Canada, people are very comfortable in a lot of ways. There, there are a lot of people that are not comfortable as well. Let's not be, you know, blow that away. But the sad thing is there's too many that are comfortable. And so the material conditions, if you want to go dialectical materialism, I know there's some complaints about that, but let's just say we take a materialist approach here momentarily. There is nothing right now. The arc of revolution isn't bending toward revolution right now. And if it did, that revolution would look a lot more like a right-wing populist revolution than a left-wing, you know, workers-led revolt to bring about equality. And I think that that's an important thing to understand as we discuss monetary operations, as long as we live in a monetary economy, and we do, and as long as the United States has not fallen, which it hasn't, and Canada's you know government hasn't fallen, it hasn't, these concepts of money have to be considered. And the left has kicked the can, pretending like these things are irrelevant, and fought the standard fight that they fought the last 50, 100 years of framing it and we got to raise taxes to pay for things. I do see some changes happening right now, but I'm curious as to your thoughts because I think a lot of resistance about learning MMT 
and stuff like that comes from this idea that you're just giving capitalism more oxygen. You're not killing the host. You're, you're, you're giving it more fuel to keep growing and going. And I'm here to tell you that as long as we live in a monetary economy, you know, we still would like to save lives unless your goal is to just not save lives. So how do you suggest in your understanding of a Marxist Leninist kind of uh, frame? I'm not really a Marxist Leninist, um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I would say well, I don't, I, I don't use malice. any labels, but I'm more broad. I'm not either. I'm more broadly a uh, anarcho-Stalinist. That's where I am. No, anarcho-Stalinist. Oh, I'm a style. I'm close to there too, man. Okay, keep going. Uh, but yeah, and I'll say I don't usually use labels just because I I think um, I mean it, it's just I find it ridiculous to use labels other than socialist slash communist because there's a lot of these different ideologies are more so created at implementing communism in different material conditions. Um, so like, I, I think, you know, Marxism, Leninism arose out of a very specific time, very specific material conditions. I don't think it's universal. I have some problems with it, but I'm not, you know, I think there's stuff to be learned. Also, let's also like this. Some people always forget this, uh, is Marxism, Leninism isn't like Marx plus Lenin. Uh, I like Marx right. and Lenin. I like to read both of them, but Marxism, Leninism was actually a term popularized by Stalin. Uh, yes. And then it was later used by Mao, uh, various other groups, whatnot. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't label myself as that. But okay, to, to get to your question, there, there's a lot to learn from these thinkers and history as a whole. I will also say when it comes to revolution, now there's a lot of ways we can interpret what that really is. Uh, I would say more broadly, I am for a political revolution. Now that can mean many yes. things. You know, Bernie Sanders called for a political revolution. Right. Um, I think there, there's many ways. OK, there's the there's the classic French Revolution. There's the Bolshevik Revolution. There's um, there's, you know, the Cuban Revolution. There's uh, also, you know, like these stealth revolutions the that the, the new I, I would consider neoliberalism, Thatcherism and Reaganism. That's a, that's a revolution. I mean, it completely changed yes. uh, the way politics just is. They totally dismantled the welfare state, dismantled the way we talk about politics. There's many ways we can do it, and it depends on our country. You know, if a country is basically a right-wing dictatorship, I mean, there's not really an option other than violent revolution, right? Um, so it's the thing about revolution, right? It's not the kind of violent revolution or what people think often when we say revolution. That isn't like a thing that's really desirable. Uh, it's usually only the kind of thing that is enforced on the masses uh, when there's no other option um, after everything has been tried. Now, I think there's different countries. I don't really see a revolution ever happening like that in Canada, for sure. It's because the way the political culture is. But there could be like a political revolution, right? Um, there, there, I think we need to talk about two things. Number one, changing minds before because you need to manufacture consent uh, or you know, get enough people supportive or not hate you. That's, that's helpful. If we get a lot of people to not hate socialism or hate... Uh, democracy or hate government that can help like is a lot of the population let's be real is always going to be apolitical there's a big part of the population who's just not going to care and our job is to like partially make them not hate us and make us a big part of the population like us um, because we always forget all all political changes are never led by the majority they're always led by minority um 
yep. you know, Trump didn't, Trump wasn't support, was supported by a slim minority of Americans. Um, the Bolsheviks was also, you know, an issue, but people, okay, who supported the Bolshevik revolution uh, against the Kerensky government, they weren't there thinking I'm studying Marx and Lenin. Most people couldn't read and they just wanted food. And they supported yeah. whatever party was most convincing and decisive. Um, it's really, well, it's really I all there is to interrupt, it. The war was going on. Most of the soldiers weren't yeah. even there. I mean, they were out there on the bat on the front and they were dragging ass home frozen sick tired frustrated disillusioned i mean to the point where when when the revolution happened the soldiers that were there kind of a okay yeah let's do this thing i i'm not going to shoot my fellow countrymen because this is a big deal they really cared about each other it was a strange thing it was it was a very interesting transition that was one of the more interesting i mean you go back to nicholas and you watch the different peaks and valleys as they tried to spark a revolution. And then finally, the conditions were such that they went ahead and did it. And it was there. And like I said, the soldiers were were gone. They had, so it, it was kind of a, not a whole lot of pushback. It was a, it, definitely an interesting story. John Reed has a great book, 10 Days That Shook the World. Definitely recommend reading that if you're interested in learning about the actual boots on the ground part of uh, the Russian Revolution. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just felt like interjecting there. Go ahead, man. Oh, no worries. Uh, also, I, I, one thing I would add is um, while re violent revolution is definitely more likely if the population is much more poor because they simply have more to lose or less to lose, rather. Uh, so that's definitely, there's definitely truth to that, but it's not a guarantee, though, that worsening material conditions will lead to revolution like there's so many poor countries that are i would say there's a greater ideological hegemony than there is in our in our countries in the united states and canada like i'm part lebanese uh, lebanon's a very poor country like revolutionary ideology is not really popular actually the most popular uh, sort of revolutionary party is sort of like a right-wing populist uh like hezbollah uh so it, it, it there's a many places where they have the like material conditions for revolution, but people ideologically aren't really all there. Um, and that's the thing. Ideology plays a much bigger role than a lot of, you know, Orthodox Marxists take, give it credit for. This is where people like Antonio Gramsci, later Marxists, uh, um, and also the Frankfurt School, people like Herbert Marcuse, Adorno, and whatnot. They really emphasize the pattern. Like more recently, Zizek, everybody knows him emphasize the the power of ideology really can just um give you an an invisible relation like a, an imaginary relationship to your real conditions so it can totally change the way you see real uh, reality now whether also material conditions are worse or better also while it may be more likely to prompt violent revolution i don't think it really determines political change uh, i'll give a good example so you know, people often point to the Great Depression is because people were poor, there was more political change. But there was also a, a big prospect of political change in the 60s, uh, late 60s. And the late 60s was actually when material conditions were some of the best in the West, uh, in America. That was like really the peak of social democracy. You had you know, the Great Society, Lyndon B. Johnson, like increasing like really the, the the Roosevelt New Deal reforms, expanding them. There was all this progress. People were doing better. And this is part of why the far right hates social democracy. They don't just hate social. A lot of social Democrats, you know, they aren't communists. 
their view is that we should give people some breadcrumbs. Uh, we are, well, there's the radical social Democrats and then the more moderate, I'll, I'll say the more moderate ones are like the ones we've, maybe we could call Roosevelt like a moderate social Democrat, not a radical one. But um, a lot of the, their point of view is like, we're trying to save capitalism by helping people. But the view of the far right, and I'll say like, you know, Thatcher or Reagan, they see uh, any sort of giving people things, it'll actually make them want to demand more. So this is the big fear, obviously, of having a job guarantee is that, oh, workers are much more able to organize and they're able to quit their jobs easier. Uh, they have much more freedom if they have a job guarantee. That's why they hate that. You know, this, so we have to understand that reformism doesn't always mean like it's going to quash revolutionary activity. It can actually increase it because, you know, people have the freedom to organize. This is overlooked. And this is why I do, you know, I would, even though I you know I much prefer universal basic services, I would not be opposed to a basic income. Uh, even if it was implemented by like a neoliberal government or whatever, I'd take it over what we fucking have now. Uh, and that's because uh, that's because we'd have some freedom to organize. Like this, this is, this is a real constraint. A lot of people just don't organize because it's too big of a risk. They don't want to, you know, get fired or in uh, lose their job and have no food to eat. It's a serious constraint. We have to pay. We're one of the only species on this earth that has to pay for water. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, so it's, um, I, th I see re reforms can lead us in a radical direction. The problem where I, I take issue with reforms is typically throughout history to implement radical reformism, we do need a wing, a more radical wing, like of whether it be Marxism, Marxism, Leninism, anarchism, militant labor movements as a whole. And we saw that in the Great Depression. You know, socialism was really on the rise. Russian uh, revolutions were, were not a distant memory. And we had uh, radical activity everywhere. So like it really gave the working class leverage to actually implement, to have reforms. This is the thing. We can't start off with the compromise right now. The way Bernie Sanders is seen, Jeremy Corbyn is seen, they're seen like the far left. And historically, this is just <laughs> not true. They're like the center yeah. left. Uh, some might even say yes. center right, depending on your perspective, I, but like, yeah, I, uh, they, they, they're moderates. They really are. And we should get to a point where they are seen as the moderates. Because right now, if we right. start at the whole left basis is social democracy, it's not going to go very far. We need social democracy to be the compromise. So like, this is my view. Uh, you know, if one doesn't have to subscribe to like uh, full communism or whatever, although I, you know, I'm, I'm very much like not, not a capitalist. I think we need to move beyond markets. I'm not for abolishing markets completely. I believe we need to um, decommodify real estate, a lot of things. But when I'm my pitch to social democrats is, if you want social democracy, which I would be happy with, by the way, tremendously improve my life. We need the radical. Uh, we need like a radical, more radical wing to get us there. And this is also how the Nordic countries got to social democracy as well. Uh, the, you know, there was a Finnish revolution. People forget that. Uh, and the the a lot of the welfare state invent, uh, implemented in Finland, which was in, implemented before Norway, Sweden which was more after in Denmark, which was after World War II. Finland was before World War II. Um, and a revolution and a lot of like progressive reforms, like a full employment, how, uh, cheap housing, was implemented, number one, to deter communism because Russia was next door. And it, it was implemented by a right-wing like proto-dictatorship. We forget that. Because oh. they had to. You know, so we, we have to look at the conditions. These, this Nordic model that a lot of social democrats idolize it would didn't come out of nowhere you know it didn't come out of just nice right. people 
<laughs> well, I want to I want to bring some. Obviously, today in the United States is Martin Luther King Day, uh, for whatever value holidays uh, you know have. But it's important, I guess, to note that you know MLK for you know a lot of uh, the discussion we're having here. You know, his deeper writings, the academic writings, point to a job for everyone and a guaranteed minimum income, not a universal basic income, but a guaranteed minimum income. And these discussion points, you know, are all this is nothing new. In other words, the stuff we're talking about is not new. We are not recreating or I shouldn't say that we're not radically changing to something that hasn't been talked about. A lot of what we're talking about right here is things that we know work, things that have a long history of being desired and have broad appeal across social and racial divides, gender divides, you name it. What would you say as a person trying to affect change in this space? How would you talk in a neoliberal world where we have balkanized by these microaggressions and these micro divides and these different little identity politics that have served so well to to make the master ruling class really laugh at us quite frankly as we keep dividing and dividing and dividing and always fighting each other instead of punching up what are your thoughts there aha so you're talking about the culture war so this is uh this is something i i've i've kind of alluded to in my videos as well is uh, the culture war is there to divide us. I mean, it's there to distract us. And it's not necessarily something new, even though I would say we've we've reached a high point of, uh, or a low point rather, of uh, culture wars in the United States after the election of Trump. Notice how the mainstream media, when they attack Trump all the time, they don't attack him for his economic policies. They, or, or even like his brutal immigration policies, or you'll see a bit of that, or his climate change policies. You'll, you'll, they'll hear him, They'll talk about how his mean tweets, uh, about his mean tweets and how mean he was, how rude he was, whatever, silly things, you know. Uh, and also culture where you see a lot of, um, I hate to say there, there is like this problem with the, the liberal left, I will say, uh, where they're, they're focused on just canceling comedians. Now, I don't think cancel culture is that like big of a deal, like conservatives think it's like this big deal. But my view is like, Okay, yeah, cancel culture isn't a big deal, but why are we even like bothering with these like idiots trying to get them deplatformed? Who cares? Let's let's focus on the people with actual power. You know, like I want to deplatform Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. I don't care about a comedian. Amen. Right? <laughs> Amen. So, <laughs> so uh, we we should be focusing on the right things, and this is um, important because a lot of people on the left fail uh, with this, and they react to the idiocy of the right when they talk about cold war nonsense and the the, the interesting thing uh sorry cold war i meant a culture war nonsense although it's also sure. they also have cold war nonsense but uh people like um the right often like ben shapiro they will try to paint it as if and jordan peterson as if it's the left who wants this culture war as if it's uh, a trojan horse for some radical neo-marxist agenda like i wish certainly not the case uh, and we're, we're, we're bothering about uh, all kind of like micro politics. I think it's important for the average person because a lot of average people are, are regu regular people, observers. They're really turned off by, um, you know, I'll be careful when I say identity politics because that can mean many things. Like when I say identity politics is like liberals who think, oh, more representation or 
only focusing on cultural appropriation or whatever, like micro things. But then there's the people on the right when they say they hate identity politics. They hate like the fact that like society is becoming less white, which is that's a whole yes. different discussion and a big problem. Like they mean very different things sometimes. There's like dog whistles embedded in that. But uh, I, I would say um, the, the, I like to just redirect people to the issues that, that affect everybody. You know, like, for example, uh, a lot of people like to bring up Martin Luther King these days. I don't know if you saw Hillary Clinton quoting Martin Luther King and uh, uh, the Boy, FBI. <laughs> yeah, the FBI are like tweeting Martin Luther King. The whole irony about Martin Luther King is uh, is. His goal was to move away from culture war nonsense. He, he was uh, like, it's not his idea of unity wasn't, oh, blacks, whites, there's no racism. Let's just all get along. It's like, no, like we're all part of like the, the working class is the majority. And that's why he supported livable income and uh, job guarantee. Right. And all, all, all these radical democratic, someone might call us democratic socialist policies, social democratic policies, whatnot. So these these actually like affect people. This is what we should be focusing on. I, I'm not. I, I'm not really interested in picking apart the latest uh, oopsie from some right wing <laughs> idiot. Like I if I'm gonna debunk, if I'm gonna debunk a right wing person, I rather debunk their economic illiteracy. You know, like it's like, oh, I'm not convinced with proving that Ben Shapiro is a bigot or a racist because yeah, I'm like no shit. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather like a more um, you know pick apart his economic. Uh, literacy right well let me let me just jump in here real quick though because one of the things that has been missing both in the bernie sanders campaign and jeremy corbyn's campaign and our current political uh you know climate if you will is that we haven't been able to create that intersectional movement and keep it we had it for a few minutes but because Bernie Sanders wouldn't say he supported reparations, he lost a large contingent of African-American individuals who would have otherwise probably supported Bernie Sanders. And then you have the indigenous communities who they're oh, saying, yeah. hey, we don't want any part of Canada. that. Yeah, we, we've got a situation where creating an intersectional movement that is not breachable by giving favors to the white guy to keep the black guy down if we were able to create that intersectional movement where we recognize the unique plight of african americans over the course of time uh you know going back to the days of chattel slavery and also recognize what has been done through reconstruction and current stuff i mean we're talking about voting we're talking about redlining for housing we're talking about literally keeping an entire community of people at the bottom rung while we promote immigrants and and the thing is that this creates this anti-immigrant sentiment that doesn't need to be there because we know as mmt informed people that we can afford to take care of immigrants, we could take care of everyone as long as we have the real resources, and we do. We really, really do have the real resources. And what what prevents us from being a sharing economy? What prevents us from being a sharing economy is the drivers, the measures, the metrics, the mindset of capitalism. And, and so part of this is us having to create that intersection Part of us is understanding the role capital plays in creating our misery. 
And then part of it is us banding together and creating a roadmap forward that brings all of us through the door, including the unique issues that prevent folks that have been oppressed traditionally into equality with us. And equality, you know, it, it's social equity is as important as social equality. Because uh, just because you're equally oppressed doesn't mean that's a good thing. We're all oppressed. We want to be unoppressed. We want to be free. Um, let's let's end on this note. Take us out here with this concept, um, if you don't mind, one dime. Yeah, well, I think the, the fact that capitalist ideology pits people against each other, one way of debunking that is actually debunking the the whole tax myth. Uh, because one thing you commonly see is whenever we talk about funding social programs and whatnot, they'll say, I don't want my, and I talk about this in my upcoming video, which is called the problem with taxing the rich. And then I have a thumbnail that says uh, taxes don't fund government spending. And um, the problem with, with uh, people who, who you say, uh, like Bernie Sanders, is what frustrates me about Bernie Sanders is he knows MMT. He had Stephanie Kelton in his advisory. He knows it. But he like capitulated to the backward economic logic of the masses out of fear. And I get like the short term immediate strategy of that, but it's catastrophic long term because I remember back then, like the discourse was always, oh, um, I don't want my money to come out of, uh, I don't want my taxpayer money to pay for someone else's laziness or uh -huh. for someone else's health care. And then you often, then this is where the bigotry uh, gets like involved, right? Remember there was that scare because Bernie Sanders wanted to provide health care for illegal immigrants? Like, who? so bad, right? Uh -huh. uh, the, the right <laughs> were saying, oh, our tax money is paying for illegal immigrants. It's like, you dipshit. The fucking illegal immigrants are making your vegetables. <laughs> like, <laughs> you no know, tax money is paying for anything. And they're doing way more for you than, like, the society is doing for them. Uh, so, like, and if it would be much more easier to debunk this if we debunk the whole tax myth because... Um, yeah, then it would be much more easy to, there wouldn't be like that excuse that bigots often use that, oh, uh, it's not that we hate blacks and illegal immigrants, we prioritize our country. So we want our tax money to go to hardworking uh, people with Western values and all of that. And <laughs> so I think it's a big argument to win if we win the tax argument. Uh, also, I, I might add one more thing. Uh, if we go in the direction of saying, no, we don't need to raise taxes to pay for universal health care, universal health care is deflationary, it's not inflationary, um, or not just that, but like all sorts of programs, uh, we, we also can potentially appeal to libertarians because the libertarians really, the reason why they are deterred by the left is they see taxes. A lot of them, you know, there's some of the bourgeois libertarians who are really just secret neoliberals. Uh, I don't care about them. I don't, I don't care about getting the Prager you on, on my side, but <laughs> there's a lot of working class libertarians and like the reasons uh, I've met a lot of them and their, their reason is often like taxes. They really just hate well, the idea of paying taxes and, and I get it. I totally understand. It goes beyond that. We do pay for one second. Those, <laughs> those guys, they hate the fact that the government has the monopoly on the money. That's the other thing. They hate government having the monopoly. They want it. <coughs> excuse me. Well, I, I don't think they, they 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 hate that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but they also they don't know that the government really has as much power as it is. They want to kind of um, they they assume that no, it's taxes that are funding these things. It's not newly created money. 
So, and this is another reason, like I've met, like there's the libertarian dishonest people who study, actually study, who are, who have way too much time on their hands, who study Austrian school <laughs> ideology, which I've tried to get into. Man, this stuff is so stupid. It's incredible. Like, uh, <laughs> really, like, yes. <laughs> these people are like, believe in the gold standard. Like this is really the, the most wasteful idea of human don't even get me started, but um, there's a lot of working class libertarians who don't really know what that means. They just think libertarian. Yes. I'm neither. I, I have a cousin who who's like who he's the type that you know lives in sort of off the grid, <laughs> and he's he likes his guns and he likes his uh, cabin. He's not a racist guy at all, uh, and he he's just, his view is I'm I don't like Democrats or Republicans. They don't do anything for me. And it's like what? And his Paul he identifies libertarian, but he's never heard of Milton Friedman or. Ludwig von Mises or Hayek, he's never heard of these people. But for a lot of people, libertarianism just means I like my freedom and no, less taxes. And I think like with MMT, we can show that, you know, we can have programs that take care of people and build society without raising so much taxes. Right on. Now, absolutely. I, I, with that one time, I want to thank you for joining me. This was really a lot of fun. Uh, why don't you let our audience know where we can find more of your work? Yeah, sure. So I have a YouTube channel, obviously, called One Dime. I'd recommend my video, The Deficit Myth, The Biggest Lie in Politics. And for those who, who already know MMT, don't really need to be briefed on that. I have a lot of other videos like Why Billionaires Prefer Democrats, controversial video that uses a lot of Marxist theory. Uh, I also have uh, the, a video called The Burnout Society, Self-Help, Hustle Culture, and Social Control. A lot of videos like that that I'm very proud of. Planet of the Robots, check those out. I also run a podcast called One Dime Radio, um, and yeah, where I talk about similar type of topics in depth. I did one episode with Phil Armstrong, you know, fellow MMT economist. Oh yeah, who, uh, yeah, I know you know very well. Uh, very nice guy. We talked about inflation, uh, debunking myths about that. And on Twitter, you can follow me at the Rap Nerd Seven. You can find all those in the description, I assume. Don't ask me why that's my name. It's a very old account. <laughs> <laughs> you're right i used to i used to i i used to i used to review hip-hop albums <laughs> ah okay well i tell you what listen i'm very very happy to have made acquaintances with you i'm really happy to now that we have a connection try to do more man because i really dig what you're doing i i think i agree with almost everything you're saying so with that folks steve grumbine the rogue scholar one dime my guest thank you everyone Please come back. We are on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at noon Eastern Standard Time. And of course, Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. Please check out our podcast, Macro and Cheese. I promise it's worth it. Uh, and with that one dime, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Awesome. Thank you. The Rogue Scholar is a production of Real Progressives. If you would like to support our work, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.